world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up! It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. She has a cool hairdo, I'm not gonna lie. And she has like the Grimogen glasses. The what glasses? Oh, here, I'll post a picture. Steven will know what I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Steven gets me. What? I'm doing my... <laughs> Screw you! What was the character's name? Sojourner? Mulane? Mulane? Uh, here, let me just copy-paste it. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce it either. Oh, yeah, okay, I've seen her on the covers of some Green Lantern books that have been, uh, uh, so freaking out of the loop with DC Comics. I, I worry that I'm never gonna get caught up with Marvel, and then I look over at DC and I'm like, oh boy. Oh, no. I also really like her, her lantern design, too. Like, her, her costume looks cool. They're doing stuff with the Green Lanterns, and I like what they're doing. I know Grant Morrison wrote some Green Lantern stuff recently. I wonder if it's any good. Oh, oh, uh, I think her Green Lantern stories were written by N.K. Jemison, mm-hmm. which is uh, probably really cool. I've read some Jemison. She's, uh, she's a good writer. And she's part of, yeah, it looks like that her series is part of DC's Young Animal imprint. Well, that's what the, uh, uh, the My Chemical Romance dude was involved in, right? Yeah, I think he was heading that after he did, like, whatever the milk the milk universe stuff he did. For we are getting Gerard way off topic. Hey! <laughs> that was pretty hey, good. Everybody, welcome to the Superhuman Registration Podcast. Hey! Are you hosting this whole episode, Aldo? Are you just, like, in charge of it? Take that, over. No. Look at no, me. No, but I saw an opportunity. Look at me. Good. I'm the Steven now. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, either, either I help get this podcast, like, back on track, or I will derail it even further. Yep. Inside you, there are two wolves. <laughs> okay, so we, we read some, some books this week. We read some Daredevil, and we read some Modoc, and we're excited to talk to you about either of them. Why not both? Okay. Uh, John, Aldo, you folks are here today with me. How are you two doing? I'm doing well. I, I'm really sad I don't have any Modoc jokes for this week. Uh... I tried to think of um, things that Modoc could do. As like low level kind of schemes and you know evil things and I I couldn't come up with anything good you know like every, I, eh. every time I go to work I think of I think of Modoc because I gotta Modoc my laptop. <laughs> wow, that's the best I got. Wow. If you want quality Modoc humor, watch the Hulu series with Patton Oswalt. That is, is such quality? a goofy show. It's such a goofy show. I thought show. so. I enjoyed. I, it. I laughed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I ended up binging that in like a two days oh, with okay. my roommates. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. yeah John, John was one of my roommates. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I sure. Yes, and, yes, and it was fun. <laughs> I think. Do we want to start out with Modoc? I think we should start out with Modoc since we're there. Uh, okay. Apologies for for cutting off all those hilarious anecdote. <laughs> it wasn't that funny. Oh well, now I don't feel bad anymore. John, why don't you take it away? <laughs> See, this is where I'm. A, I'm a, I apologize again because I don't have. Um, Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite movies, and I don't have a. Uh, what do we need? A Boski, a Jim Brown, a Miss Daisy, two Jethro's, and a Leon Sphinx, and not to mention the El- biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. I don't have code names for everybody in this uh, Modox Eleven crew. Luckily, they've provided one for us, as well as a little diagram for anyone who's too dumb to follow this very straightforward story. But we read Modox Eleven which is a 2007 book 
by Fred Van Linty, and I am on the wrong page for the creative team. Dang it, Portella is one of the other artists. Let me bring it up, sorry. Fred Van Linty is our writer. Francis Portella is the penciler. Terry Pallet is the inker. Guru FX did the colors. Nate Picos was the letterer. Um, the covers uh, looks like Marco, uh, oh boy, Dergevic. I know I butchered that, and I apologize, but this is from 2007. Um, Modoc wants to steal the, um, hype, no, no, see, I'm one of the dummies who has to refer to the, uh, the guide here. The Hypernova, there's, a, a very narrow window of time when a, um, group of advanced beings are going to have this, um, Hypernova, where it's going to be, uh, attainable. And so Modoc has calculated everything and realizes he needs a team. So he recruits Armadillo as his muscle, Chameleon as the master of disguise, Deadly Nightshade as their genetics expert, the Living Laser uh, for the security systems, Mentalo as their psychic, uh, Puma as an acrobat, Rocket Racer as a getaway driver, the spot for breaking and entering, um, and uh, everyone counting along. That's only eight, okay, and then Modoc is nine. Well, the two that we don't count on at the beginning are actually the infiltrators for this plan. Uh, Monica Repacini um, is the uh, new head of Advanced Idea Mechanics and um, is spying on Modoc and trying to uh, pull one over on him, and uh, the Mandarin as well. Both of them have people on the inside. So Modoc recruits all of these people individually um, and offers them $5 million, appear, makes different uh, people appear to them, get them out of their normal lives, and all of them are kind of in a place where they you know, need this money. He offers them $5 million to show up at a certain place at a certain time. And um, they all butt heads. And um, eventually, after Modoc fools them with a couple of things, they, they you know go pull off the heist. But... Um, we discover that Chameleon is actually the ultra-adaptoid sent in by Monica Rappuccini, head of AIM, to spy on and um, steal the Hypernova before MODOK can. That Chameleon kills Mentalo, and uh, the spot, we find out later, is actually working for the Mandarin. Um, both of them try to get to the Hypernova, but MODOK, as it turns out, was a couple steps ahead, had stolen one of the spot's spots to steal the Hypernova as it was being stolen, uh, backstabbed them first before he could get backstabbed. Hype, a rocket Racer is also constantly on the phone with his Ma. He keeps talking to Ma, Ma, Ma. Turns out it's one of, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and he's working for S.H.I.E.L.D., in the end, Modoc is able to make peace with Monica, sell her the Hypernova, um, but it turns out it can't last forever, and it uh, explodes and kills her, and so she paid him a billion dollars to kill her, and he starts his own organization with the money. I We can get more into it. I don't want to keep going on. Um, this was kind of fun. What did you guys think? I think it's funny that Modoc was able to say so far, you know, so many steps ahead of everyone else when he has such short legs. Well, that is true. Hey, yo. <laughs> um, I thought, I didn't know much about Ultra Adaptoid. I thought this was a cool um, use of them. I, you know, I was like, oh, Chameleon, that'll be interesting. And then, what? They're a bad guy? Like, when uh, Mentalo is sure that the uh, Chameleon is actually Spider-Man, and then Chameleon, in his Chameleon form, says, flame on, and, you know, burns up Mentalo. It's like, so Human Torch is... In disguise, and then you find out it's the Ultra Adaptoid, who just kind of picks and chooses at uh, powers, and is controlled remotely by AIM. So that's cool. 
Um, it's cool seeing, you know, the uh, Thing's fists with uh, Archangel's wings and uh, shooting Human Torch fireballs and uh, Scarlet Witch's witch bolts and stuff. Uh, I thought that was, you know, that was pretty cool. Which came first, the Adaptoid or Amazo? Because DC Comics has a villain that does the same thing. I don't know when Amazo came out, but I'm going to guess Adaptoid was uh, mid-60s. I'm willing to bet it's true for Amazo as well. Mm. Um, I'll look that up. You you had another point you were going to make. No, just I don't know a whole lot about all these characters. The uh, Spot being a ridiculous Spider-Man villain. It's interesting that we have him because, you know, he pops up um, again later in another book we read. He was in an issue of a bunch of, like, loser Spider-Man villains. Spider-Man's, you know, very temporarily captured by them, and they just don't know what to do because it's just too big of a deal. And Spot was one of them, and he's just ridiculous and uh, continues to be so here. So, I don't know. I thought the art was pretty good. I thought the coloring was good, you know. Fairly well done. Deadly Nightshade, that seems like an interesting character um, when she can kind of just like cobble together what she needs in the moment. You know, you know, it's a, I don't know, like we, we need this type of material to get the job done and that was interesting. You know, it would have been nice to see them work together a bit more, but of course they're a, a team of supervillains, so they're all going to butt heads and kind of go their own way. Living Laser wants to um, absorb the uh, hypernova to create a body for himself again, and that kind of seems to happen at the end. Um, as uh, the hypernova is becomes unstable and then kills all of AIM, or all of those people in AIM, you know, we see... Puma has uh, his uh, ancestral totem that he loses and then becomes worthy of again, but doesn't really become worthy of again because Deadly Nightshade just kind of turns him back into his Puma form. Like a werewolf drug. Yeah, you know, like you do, werewolf drugs. Um, I don't know, it was fun. I, I, I like heists and, uh, you know, enough like shenanigans were going on behind the scenes. Modoc actually took a big back seat in this. Um, it was kind of just like behind the curtains. I was expecting a lot more grandstanding and big speeches and stuff, um, as he is wont to do, but we didn't get a lot of that. He set the plan in motion, and most of the action was happening between the uh, team members mm -hmm. during the job. We didn't see kind of him monologuing to himself or to, you know, some lowly minion. He did refer to them all as minions, so that was fun. I don't know. I thought it was all right. I thought it was a decent story. I thought it was, you know, it was interesting enough to keep, it was a, it was a page turner. But you all I, are yeah. very quiet, <laughs> so I'm worried <laughs> that I was the <laughs> no, only one who was entertained. No, no, I, I liked it. I I don't know what I was expecting. Um, I think I expect a little bit more of, like, I don't know, like a, like a more of a straightforward, like, heist. Not to say that it wasn't, but it, I don't know. I expected, Mo like, kind of like you, I expected Modoc to be a little bit more involved in mm -hmm. this, I did appreciate a couple things. Like you mentioned, I did appreciate that he kept calling everybody minions. Mm -hmm. I did appreciate that they... That he got the thing that he was trying to get from the... Like, pretty early on in the heist. Yeah, yeah. And then just let them kind of keep doing the heist. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I appreciate that. Also, two things are... Two things are weird. I think if I read this book like maybe a year or two ago, I would have had no idea who Rappuccini is. Mm -hmm. I only know that now because she was featured quite a bit in the Marvel Avengers game from Square Enix. That is terrible and not very good. She's kind of a main antagonist alongside Modok. Like you see Modok become Modok in that. And two, everything that is Modok that takes him real seriously. I just it, this is my first encounter with it. And I'm not pleased. 
Uh, the Modoc TV show ruined Modoc for me. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't I kept expecting him to like to make some sort of dumb jokes or something. I do think that the one like consistent thing across the media that I've consumed, which is all three of which is all a sample size of three, which is this comic, the game, and the show, and it has been that Modoc and Ravicini consistently in a relationship or some sort of relationship has happened uh-huh. and i did think it was funny that like kind of the 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 punchline to this is modok yelling that now that they've defeated his ex-girlfriend now they can take over the world <laughs> <laughs> that's like my biggest grief with this book is that it wasn't as funny as i thought it was going to be um, yeah. and a lot of the jokes that were there as as unfortunately proven to be the case with fred ben Lenti, don't really land. They haven't aged super well. Um, but the big one, the joke at the end of the book, where Modoc, you know, gloats over having defeated his ex-girlfriend, uh, that one was good. That was a good joke. It got me. Yeah. I did think it was also really funny when I popped up in this book and I saw Fred Van Lente and I was like, ah, good old Van Lente, good old friend of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is like a redemption compared to the other ones. This might be the best I, Fred Van Lente book we've read. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think it is the best one. There was just something funny about it going like, ah, Van Lente. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see how you come out of this one. I have such, like, affection for Fred Van Lente because of his involvement with the Hercules series, which I was quite fond of when yeah. uh, I read it ten years ago. And uh, I don't know. I think, okay, I actually do think I know what happened. Um, we're talking mainstream about audiences developed an awareness of cultural <laughs> issues that made it so certain jokes aren't as funny and ah. maybe never were but yeah like I think specifically like this issue or this comic has a fair bit of racist humor a lot of it at the expense of Puma who is otherwise I think quite an interesting character well not just Puma but also the armadillo a little bit at the armadillo too. I noticed it mostly with Puma. I think. I don't. I don't know that, that humor on him felt racist. At least not to me. I didn't. He got called Tonto. Oh, I didn't. Uh, I must have skimmed right over that. <laughs> That's fair. Never mind. Yeah. That's fair. I'll take that back. But like, and it's not a. You know, this isn't a who's most oppressed competition. But it's just like this was I something. <laughs> this this was something that I think was just like what people, and I'm going to specify white people, did. And I don't think they did it with the intention of being malicious. They just didn't understand. And the broader audience didn't understand that, uh, no, these these jokes kind of aren't okay. And as a result, stories that are otherwise kind of solid, if not, you know, actually good, have wound up aging kind of worse than they might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that's, that's what fair. this book falls falls prey to. Um, it's, overall, I don't think it's it's bad, and I definitely think we've seen worse examples of of this sort of thing. But, oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I just feel like the comedy has aged so poorly that it's almost not there. Mm-hmm. I, I will say yeah. that one of the things. Sorry, moving on from that because that. I don't have anything else to add. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> I don't want to beat that horse because I liked the story better than that statement might make it sound. So I'm okay if we move on. 
what I was going to say is that one of the things that I like in this book is how it's called Modox 11, right? The supervillain team of Modox 11. And at the beginning of the book, probably the first two or three chapters, as they're revealing the last two people who are part of the 11, it kind of feels like they're not really part of the 11. Like, it's like the joke feels that, like, it's, you know, obviously a play on Ocean's 11, right? But that half, or like, not half, but like three of the people are, t- are two timing Modok, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I like the revelation kind of at the end that, like, it's all been part of his plan. So even if they weren't in on it, they were still part of Modok's 11. Yep. And I thought that was actually pretty clever. It's that perfect heist moment, I feel like. You know, you think everything's gone wrong, and it turns out, no, they actually had the upper hand the whole time. You just didn't... You just weren't savvy to the plan. Yeah. Well, and it's not even they. It's literally just him. It's literally yeah. just Modok. <laughs> just him. Which is fine. That's, that's great. That's the point. That's fun. Yeah, yeah fun. I kind of wish the book had been a little funnier. That's it. That's, I think, my only complaint. Is it yeah. feels like it was kind of ripe to be a little bit more comedic, and it just wasn't. Or is that because of the show taking such an outlandish villain and making it humorous, and that's now what we expect? Or is there any other way to perceive MODOK because he's so goofy? <laughs> well, I think... I think for me, the lack of humor isn't even because of the show. I, you know, I made that joke a little bit, but he's featured so little in here that making him comedic would not have improved the book that significantly. I think more of the humor that I would have wanted would have been from the actual main cast who are like those, you know, six or however many actual villains were in on or were hired. Right. Yeah. Right. And I did want to see more of some of them. Uh, Like I said, uh, Puma is almost really interesting. Just, I, I like this sort of attitude that he has about, he, he's almost like this weird sort of Robin Hood figure. And mm-hmm. I think that could have been really interesting to explore, but I worry that the, uh, some of the stereotypes and the way that they kind of, I don't know, it, there's a lot of potential left on the page. Same with Armadillo. I don't know, the cast is almost too big, I think is where I'm coming down. And the cast that does get more focus doesn't get respect to go along with that focus. Yeah. And that's a little bit disappointing because I, I think the comedy doesn't quite land, but the drama, the intrigue, does. Mm-hmm. And I think part of like what's also a little, left me a little wanting is there's a couple, I don't know, kind of side plots a little bit that don't really go anywhere. I think the one that comes to mind is Bob, or whatever his his name is, Rocketer or something like that. Oh, that guy. Yeah, see, I don't even remember his name. <laughs> but he has a crush on uh, Lady Nightshade. Was that her name? I think so. Nightshade. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he has like a crush on her, and like there's a little bit of flirting going on. And there's a part where he's talking to Mom, or as we later find out, S.H.I.E.L.D., right? I think, <laughs> but he's <laughs> yeah. talking. He's talking to them, and, th- and he's like, he's like, yeah, I really like her, and you know, blah blah blah. I, th- I think this might be a good thing. I mean, can can you also grant her, grant her clemency? You know. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was some really good, a little bit of foreshadowing. Now that I think about it, but I really kind of wish like that had gone somewhere. Some sort of like little, like little something of him telling her that he has a crush or or something. I don't know. But that just kind of ended up not really. I mean, apart from the shield reveal right apart from that 
doesn't really go anywhere on a personal level. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, Armadillo, we had, you know, a good backstory where he's, you know, he's fighting. We have a few pages devoted to that. And, and you know, he's in a hard way and he has to fight because he's kind of an outcast. And then, and then nothing. He's just the muscle. He's just, you know, in some big splash pages and not really consulted on, like, the plan or anything besides your big hit that make a hole, dig, dig us there, you know. Yeah. And I think... Two examples that I kind of want to compare a little bit to this. One is the Suicide Squad movie, the James Gunn one, the good one. (laughs) (laughs) One, because it's also like a heist thing, right, with a bunch of villains. Mm -hmm. And granted, that's a two-hour movie. It's really well done. I don't know how this compares to it time-wise, right, how this compares to a two-hour movie. But part of that was also they had some really good side plots on, like, accepting people. And it doesn't change their role on the team, right? Like, the muscle is still the muscle, the... The, you know, the smart, intelligent person is still that. But it kind of goes from being reluctantly the muscle to being the muscle because you've been accepted and it's helped you It's helped you accept yourself. And, like, that's kind of what I think was missing a little bit. Like, some more pathos at the bare minimum, like Steven was saying, for the three characters that remain mm-hmm. towards the end of this whole thing. Like, something a little bit nicer other than what we got. I think it's kind of what it was lacking comparison i wanted to make was the the black cat comic that's been coming out the more recent stuff they have that the two recent volumes they've been high stuff they've been really personal but they've also had like a smaller cast and it works a lot better like i think the comedy works a lot better the kind of personal stakes and all of it work better so again kind of agreeing with steven i think kind of a smaller cast probably would have benefited and less humor weirdly yeah like this this needed to be a lot funnier or a lot more serious. It was kind of right in the middle and and failed it both as far as like tonally if you're trying to go for like, you know, mm-hmm. drama, comedy, you know, I think there were moments of I don't know. I don't even know if it was trying to be funny, funny, like really. I thought are moments where I feel like it wanted to. I yeah. mean you don't I mean, maybe you do make a serious book where somebody refers to their shield handler as mama but like like that feels like that's a joke from a comedic thing it does um and that's actually part of my problem with the the humor that is there even leaving aside the bits that you know have aged poorly because white people finally figured out that racism is bad some of us sort of anyway um (laughs) steven's like i'm still struggling (laughs) (laughs) oh boy but like a lot of the humor that was there felt mean-spirited. Like, Rocket Racer is a character who, like, you know, he seems to have this weird fixation with his mother who is on life support or something, and it's treated as weird and creepy when I think it's not earned and it just kind of comes across as mean-spirited. It's like, ah, ha, ha, look at this, you know, really awkward guy who has a mommy complex that's getting uh, taken advantage and of by a, S.H.I.E.L.D. And a stutter, yeah. And a stutter, and it's like, yeah, I I think there is a lot of room for doing really good work with these characters that could make them really interesting. I get hung up on Puma, and he's not the only one. Mentallo had some interesting stuff going on until he's just dead and out of the story. Yep. And I think that it's not shocking enough to, like, really serve as a, a moment of, like, raising stakes, because... We don't care who we don't know enough about the character. These are all C-list characters. It reminds me of, like, the Suicide Squad 
for another reason, where these are all villains that nobody really cares about. Kind of the genius of the Suicide Squad, at least in its original incarnation, is it took all of these villains that were largely nobodies and made you care about them while also keeping the stakes very high because they illustrated very early that anyone could die. Uh, that original run of Suicide Squad comics is pretty decent and turned characters like Deathstroke, like the Enchantress, like, or excuse me, not Deathstroke, Deadshot, into, like, real characters with real intelligence and growth and stakes behind them. You you cared about them in a way that you didn't when Deathstroke sh or Deadshot first showed up in the pages of Batman was just, like, a villain of the week. And this book, I think, aspires to do something similar, and I don't think it quite works because the cast is too big and the characters aren't taken seriously enough. And I agree. I still enjoyed it, though. Like, Same. I feel like we're, like, we're picking at it, and it was still, like, was kind of fun. And, I don't know, I think it was, like, you know, competently uh, written and drawn and everything like that. I think we're, it's it's hard sometimes when something is really close to something you like, because I love heist movies. I love heist movies. Even the ones you see coming a mile away, like, fine. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I take that back. Um, now you see me, it was like, ugh. But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate the first Now You See Me. Good heist movies are great. And this, yeah, it, excuse me, it had a lot of those elements, but you know there are little things that you could change to make it a little, just a little bit better, you know, so maybe that's why I work. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good story that could have been great and kind of winds up getting dragged back by its worst impulses instead of forward by its best stuff. Mm. At least that's my read on it. The animated Suicide Squad movie was also pretty good. I didn't know they made an animated Suicide Squad movie. There's two of them. Huh. The second one, not so good, but the first one, Assault on Arkham, pretty good. Never going to get caught up in all the superhero media. It's never going to happen. <laughs> the Suicide Squad gets sent to Arkham to go kill the Riddler. The Riddler, not the Joker? Wow. No, the Riddler. Yeah. Oh. I just read Zero Year. That's probably justified. <laughs> <laughs> I just, talking about superhero media, we're never going to catch up on. I need to watch season three of Harley Quinn. I never cared about King Shark. <laughs> never even, never even registered on my radar. And the version of him that is in the Harley Quinn show is amazing, and I love him, and he's my favorite. And I want to protect him, but he doesn't need protection. <laughs> Probably another character who got a bit of a rehab job, thanks to the Suicide Squad, because he was in the New 52 reboot, if I remember correctly. Suicide, uh, King Shark? King Shark was in the New 52 reboot of the Suicide Squad, I believe. And that's what put him in the orbit of Harley Quinn. I'm gonna reiterate what I said not two minutes ago. He did not even register on my radar, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was right there. I was at ground zero of the New 52, working in a comic book store, picking up stuff, talking to people about it. I don't, did not register. It might have come a little bit later. I might be misremembering things, but... There was definitely a King Shark Suicide Squad uh, connection. I'm, I'm not saying it, it didn't happen. I'm just saying that just just how much he didn't <laughs> Yeah, so which of these characters would you want to see more of, like, from this? Because I do think it does a decent, the book does a decent job of making some of these characters interesting. And obviously for me, I'm going to say Puma. I really wish that we would get a good quality, <laughs> like, Puma comic with someone who can treat the cultural... Uh, background with some sensitivity uh but what do you guys think nightshade i think nightshade was probably my favorite yeah actually no nightshade and uh the living laser guy yeah i was i would say uh super adaptoid seems interesting 
as a like you know villain tool really um but yeah definitely definitely deadly nightshade the living laser i think to me was a little bit interesting in his personal stakes in all this where they're using him right to help control a laser or whatever crap is going on with that a lot of that kind of seemingly unimportant so i stopped caring and remembering um <laughs> but the thing i thought was interesting is when he's fighting the mandarin did we mention that the mandarin is in here no we haven't even Briefly. mentioned that the mandarin is in here yeah he has a robot a robot dragon plane well, Which wouldn't wouldn't funny. you if you had a? I absolutely would. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, when he's fighting the Mandarin, the Mandarin, th- this Mandarin's father had hired that living laser guy like a couple times, so he knew about him. So he talks about how he has the ability to attack like chi energy with his, and that he hits him, and he's and he's actually able to hit him, and he's like, I can feel. And he's just super excited. He's like, hit me again. Do it again. <laughs> Punch me. Because it's the first time in who knows how long that he has felt anything. Because he can't feel, like, the sunlight. He doesn't breathe. He doesn't, he can't feel, like, the air. Like, nothing, right? Like, he is just a living laser, so he can't feel anything. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And that would be, I think, really interesting to dissect, like, standalone in a serious book, right? Like, what does it mean to be... To lose all of that and still be conscious and having to work so hard to maintain yourself like in some sort of physical form, right? Because when Mentalo gets in his head, there's really not any thoughts that he can read, but he sees that it's all like just lasers trying to hold them themselves together. Is kind of the impression that I got. And so he's constantly having to concentrate on that. So I think the idea, I, that just feels like uh, like the perfect book for Alan Moore to write. Oh my gosh. That right. would be like Swamp Thing era Alan Moore writing Living Laser. I'm in a hall of mirrors just bouncing around. To me, my snake man, bring me my pens. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much. Good I've never actually stuff. heard Alan Moore talk. I just went off of John's impression. Oh, Al- you should absolutely hear Alan Moore talk. For one thing, Turns out the man is really smart when it comes to talking comics. And for another thing, accent, you know. Mm. I've, I've, it's been a while since I've heard him talk. And I thought, if I finish this interview, a spell will be cast on me. And I will have to, <laughs> like, buy all of his books, good and bad, alike. So. <laughs> he actually just released, or is about to release, his first ever short story anthology. Hmm. It's all book, not comic. Just all normal book. No pictures, all words. So I'm not going to pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, look at Aldo pitching this. Oh, oh, right. (laughs) I I imagine it'll be good and amazing. (laughs) I'll never find out. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. He was born where? (laughs) Northampton. I gotta see who else was born in Northampton so I could approximate what that's like. Northampton, born and raised in the playground as well. Oh, see, that's oh boy, that's a piece of crap. It's like right in the middle. I can't do that. We read that we've been talking about for the past half hour. No, I don't have anything else. No, it's we should. Yeah, yeah. The covers are really cool, especially this one of Chameleon slash Super Adaptoid. It's all grayscale, and he's got his like flaming fist, and he's got his wings, and he's got his you know snarling look on his face, and it's it's just cool. Yeah. Also, the Chameleon I feel would be like a really interesting character to do like a serious take on somebody somebody who spent so much of their life and effort and like mental 
prowess pretending to be other people. What is left of yourself? Like he goes into a coffee shop and like instantly knows everything about everybody in there just from observation. But yeah, can't he falls in love with another villain and the, they're like, "What about you? Tell me about yourself." And he's like, uh, <laughs> and doesn't know his own <laughs> coffee order. Like, <laughs> like falls in love with the barista but can't tell her how he likes his own coffee because he just never knows. He doesn't ever does it yeah. on his own. Yeah, he knows how like the twelve people in the in in the shop that he walked past. He knows exactly how they like their coffee, but him. He doesn't know anymore. <laughs> oh boy. I ought to pitch that. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Three issue miniseries. Let's go. Umberto Ramos. <laughs> yeah. He's not busy with anything more important. <laughs> Let's collab on this, brother. <laughs> Mi hermano. I was going to say, say, say hermano. <laughs> <laughs> Mi hermano. <laughs> uh, speaking of going on, let's, let's move on. <laughs> Let's let's talk about Daredevil. I don't think Steven knows what Hermano means. <laughs> I I know what Hermano means. He it said means... Ramos, not Vamos. <laughs> <laughs> Hermano is Spanish for the mono. Hermano, <laughs> what about his mono? Yeah. It's really yeah, men's it's rights. It's really all about our mono. <laughs> all monos, Steven. All monos. All monos. Take it away. <laughs> All right. Uh, we read <laughs> the Daredevil Volume 3 relaunch by Mark Wade. We read the first six issues. Written by Mark Wade. Pencils and inks. Uh, switching between issues, I believe. Between Marcos Martin or Marcos Martin, maybe. I don't know. Gotta add a little bit of uh, accent to it. And... On other issues, pencils by Paolo Rivera and inks by Joe Rivera. Which, am I to assume that they're brothers? I don't know. I don't know. How common is the last name Rivera? I, I would imagine pretty common. Oh, actually, Joe Rivera is the father of Paolo Rivera. Oh, hey. Sweet. Look at that. Father, sons. I was going to give you some grief about Mar- assuming Marcos Martin. It was Martin. And, you know, he was Sp- he, he is Spanish. Like, he is from Spain. Do you think he's related to Steve Martin? L- uh, let me see. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, Aldo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at his Wikipedia. <laughs> what, what about Martin Sheen? <laughs> <laughs> he, n- <laughs> he's, he's, he's part of the Estevez family. So, I mean, you're not too far off, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, so a little bit of homework leading up to this. This comes out from the Fallout from the Shadowland event series in which Daredevil became the leader of the Hand. He made a castle fortress in New York and was taken over by some sort of demon thing that caused him to be very evil and very mean. After that... Uh, he left, he went over to New Mexico, and I think it's somewhere somewhere between Shadowland and this, his identity was revealed to the world. And Foggy and him, I believe, also kind of fought that to, to kind of disprove it. And this is kind of where we would get like the next 10 years of like, I'm not Daredevil jokes. Yep, jokes are real good. So to kind of set, set up that this begins with, uh, with Daredevil and... Foggy setting up a new law practice again back in New York and Daredevil kind of feeling confident again and being Daredevil again. So he is Daredeviling and he fights the spot at a mafia wedding and because he is protecting 
a little girl from being killed or kidnapped uh, by the spot at this whole event. Kisses the bride and then makes the front page. So that's that. That's literally just like the first couple pages. And the rest of this, uh, the rest of these six issues kind of splits up into two stories. The first story revolves around Matt and Foggy trying to represent a band named something Jobrani. And I hate that the whole time I was reading the book, I kept thinking of Jabroni, which is like that kind of <laughs> slang insult. And I was like, that's not very nice. So Jobrani has some sort of police brutality case that Matt and Foggy have uh, agreed to represent them on. And it turns out that they can't because every time Matt steps into the court, they make it about him being Daredevil, even though legally he has proven that he's not. But everybody feels and knows that he is, so they turn it about that and it kind of just ruins the whole case. So he is trying to find, or they're suggesting finding somebody else to represent Jobrani. And in doing so, he finds out that part of the reason or one of the problems that Jobrani has been hearing voices. Turns out that these voices are coming from Ulysses' claw or Ulysses' sound shadows that were left over from when he got turned into pure sound and blasted into outer space. As, as happens sometimes in comics. As happens sometimes in comics. Yeah, so he's been whispering to Jobrani to drop the case because if he doesn't, he will... Or, or because if he, if he doesn't drop the case and he wins it, which he's sure to win it, uh, he will buy the property that Claw and his, or the sound shadows of Claw are, you know, making their comeback and they're trying to rebuild themselves into Claw or something like that. Just going to show you that the real estate agents and the real estate industry is the real enemy of all. Mm-hmm. Landlords are the true villain of the 21st century. <laughs> Magneto? So he... No, 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 no. <laughs> Remax. <laughs> So he de- defeats the, the sound shadows and is able to kind of clear Jobrani of like the voices he's hearing. But since he can't represent him and nobody else really wants to represent him because Foggy went around telling everybody that he's hearing voices because it was leaked to him by the new DA, Christian McDuffie. And uh, so they decide they're going to help him. And so that's kind of what their law practice is doing now is instead of representing people, since they typically represent people who won't be picked up by other people anyways. They're helping people train them to representing themselves. And this leads into the next to the next arc, which involves a young blind man named Austin Cow, who is uh, fluent in like 17 languages. And he has been let go, so he's suing his past employer for kind of wrongful termination. Uh, come to find out that part of the reason why he's been un- unemployed or why he's been fired is because he overheard a little bit of a conversation from some Latverians and correctly pointed out that they were Latverian. And that kind of spooked his boss. And his boss and the company that he's in is like Midas Investments is in cahoots with like five major cartels, which are like Hydra, AIM, Zodiac, Black Spectre, and Secret Empire. I took notes in case you can't tell. Oh, I'm glad you took those notes because I wouldn't have been able to name all five of those. I, so. I I started reading this book and I was like, this is going to get complicated. It's actually pretty straightforward. So yeah. I, I was like, there's going to be a lot of lawyer talk. I've seen Legal Eagle. This is going to get complex real fast. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> so he finds out that because Midas is in cahoots with all these uh, cartels and empires, right? That Mr. Randall... Uh, Austin's boss, I was going to call him father. He's a bit of a father figure to him, though. But Austin's boss fired him to kind of separate him from the whole thing. 
And part of that is because they're all connected. They're all going to be doing some sort of business in Latveria. Like they're trying to kind of all work in unison and kind of get into some sort of um, like you can't touch us because of international whatever, whatever, whatever legal words. International whatever, whatever whatever legal words. Yeah. (laughs) Point is that they should be protected because they're working through Latveria and it would cause like an international incident if somebody was to like go after them or something. And part of that agreement was for everybody to put all of their evil information on a hard drive, like a singular hard drive that is super hard to decrypt and also made out of Mr. Fantastic's logo from one of his costumes. But you didn't see that coming. Matt Murdock sure didn't. Uh, Oh, Aldo. Yeah, that was in poor taste. Aldo. (laughs) And so it kind of ends that he's able to get them out. He tells Randall to, like go away because he's kind of you know he was part of this illegal operation and part of the way that he got them out or yeah kind of got the three of them out austin randall himself was by telling these kind of lackeys or ambassadors of these cartels that like hey just tell them daredevil be be all your goons just tell them that daredevil did did all this uh you don't have to go home and explain to your bosses why there is now an international incident or like who failed who and blah 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 you can blame it all on me, and everybody gets to go home today. And so, like, that's what happened. So it kind of leaves us not quite a, a cliffhanger, but it does set up that, like, in the future, Daredevil is going to be hunted by several major evil organizations. Everybody. Everybody. everybody but yeah, he does have a lot of uh, incriminating and potentially dangerous information, making him one of the most dangerous men on Earth. Or so he says. Oh, yeah, he fought Captain America. yes that did happen in there too didn't it that did happen i wrote captain america in here (laughs) tells him his shield is so well balanced it was like touching a stradivarius i thought that was a nice little touch yeah i thought that was a neat conversation right because i think prior to this bucky had also been brainwashed and so cap is kind of feeling the guilt and he feels that anybody who is you know failing or being brainwashed i guess it's his it's his fault his responsibility so he tells them that he gets it but, like, he's fine, he's himself, blah, blah, blah. I thought that was kind of a cute little, neat little conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughts? So this story rules. Yeah. Both of them, because there were two separate stories, and they were right, both really yeah. good. And they are connected, because there is this through line uh, going through with, like, uh, Daredevil shifting into his legal practice, and there's, like, these shadowy people who are kind of harassing his clients, and it's not... I don't think all of the secrets are revealed because, like, Claw is trying to tell Daredevil something when he zaps off into space and Daredevil isn't able to hear it. So, it's not like 100% everything is wrapped up in each of the stories. There's definitely some sort of through line through it all. But, yeah. uh, Story owns. It's really good. And I thought this was the um, arc where he goes to San Francisco and has a new practice. That's a different Mark Wade Daredevil arc. And that we've read, like, part of earlier. I don't know. People like to get up in arms about every little change in comics. And this is a slightly chipper Daredevil. And for some reason, a lot of people are like, "Mm, I want my Daredevil brooding. I'm okay with both. I think that, you know, this works. I really like Mark Wade. Um, Everything I've read has been great from him. I think, yeah, I think Daredevil works as a brooder. I think it's... Especially if it's done well. Especially if you add some good old Catholic guilt to it. I think brooding oh, yeah. Daredevil is excellent. But, I mean, I, I recommend that we read the Mark Wade run in kind of response to everybody 
you know, throwing a hissy fit that he might be making an appearance. Well, from the trailers, we know he'll make at least an appearance in the She-Hulk show. And everybody was like, oh, gross, he's going to be funny and he's going to make jokes. That's not Daredevil. Daredevil doesn't make jokes. And it's like, I don't know. Daredevil's the guy that goes to a Christmas party wearing a shirt that says, I'm not Daredevil. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, and I think yeah. that's part of the point. Is like Daredevil can make jokes. He was very much more of like a swashbuckly type figure when he first debuted, if I remember correctly. And it was Frank Miller who imbued the character mm-hmm. with a lot more of that guilt and that angst when he wrote the character in the 80s. And, you know, Daredevil was basically Batman, uh, as evidenced by the fact that Frank Miller also wrote Batman and they basically are the same. And that, char- that version of the character was really popular, rightly so. Uh, we've read some of those stories. They're pretty good. Yeah. The Death of Electra ranks pretty high on our comics. Pretty high. But, you know, that's not the only thing the character can do. And, I don't know. There's there's some really good stuff here, too. I think Daredevil is, like, in a pretty unique position where he can be pretty comedic and pretty serious. And it doesn't feel like whiplash or character assassination to do either or. Right. I think Batman could do it, but I... I I feel like people are too afraid to make to take that risk. I I don't know, because I feel like some of the most highly acclaimed Batman stories of the past, I don't know, 20 years, have taken that risk and had him be a little bit more, a little bit more lighthearted. Like, even Scott Snyder has, like, these really great moments of levity in his run. Mm-hmm. And Grant Morrison did a really good job with that as well when they wrote my favorite run on the character to date. But, um... Yeah, I was. I'm glad you brought up Batman because, in that context, because I do think there's a very legitimate comparison to be made mm-hmm. between this Daredevil and Batman because I do think Batman has similar sorts of trajectories. Ironically enough, the one who uses radar is not the Batman. <laughs> huh. Well, he said he did clarify it's not exactly echolocation. It's kind of like you know a radar sense where he's like touching everything in the room all at once. I did like, you know, because you assume it's Stanley's rule that it's everyone, every comic is someone's first comic. So mm-hmm. this one, you know, it's a new setting for Daredevil. It's kind of a end of a big arc where he's getting back to business. He's kind of fighting against an old image. And so maybe we're getting some new readers. So we have this two issue arc where we kind of get a little bit of that. Um, mm-hmm. How does Daredevil work? You know, what's his character like? I love the little detail where he ships all these packages to himself so he can daredevil yes. across town and still have a suit loved the moment when he realizes what the employer did you know for the the kid who gets fired for overhearing mm-hmm. the librarian conversation he's like realizes oh it's it was a, to protect him and so then he's a hundred percent you know yeah on that note i also really appreciate or like how he kind of helps the kid remember what happened yes that was a great detail yeah he sets up his apartment and the clothes and the tea and like everything as much as he can to help trigger those memories so you can help him remember a little bit more clearly. I was like, that's really cool. Like, it's again, one of those things where like he's blind, so he gets it. Like he gets kind of what helps with those types of things. It feels like a little bit of, of bullcrap science, but it's also a oh, Marvel absolutely. comic and that's <laughs> probably fine. Yeah. It's one of those things that it feels sympathetic because you know that that's what he would do as a character. Not as an actual scientific thing. Right, yeah. And it, it, again, like, 
it's just, it's a comic book. Just relax mm-hmm. and enjoy the silliness. And yeah, this is, this is pretty good silliness. Talking about his not echolocation, <laughs> that was one of the things I really like about the art is how when it's drawing through his perspective, yeah, we get a lot of the waves, right? Like the quote unquote echolocation waves to kind of help shape it and kind of give us an idea of what he experiences because he doesn't see it, right? Like he experiences his surroundings. But one of the things I like, especially in the covers, is how we see that as the onomatopoeias of the yes. stuff that he's hearing. Yeah. So I think I think with the onomatopoeias, I think it's on the first cover. Yeah, on that first cover that is a little, maybe a little unambiguous because you can't, if you don't look at it too closely, you, it just kind of looks like vague beige background. But on that cover, everything is an onomatopoeia of the sounds it's creating. So like the pigeons that are in the forefront and a little bit in the back, they say like flap, 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 flap. The little air conditioner stuff on the bottom left is like whoosh. And that kind of carries through the book. Obviously not as intensely, but I do appreciate that. Yeah. I yeah, feel like it took us way too long to consistently do that with Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this kind of reminds me of like Hawkeye in the way that the the sensory experience of the character is getting translated to the visuals, and this this inherited that from Hawkeye, right? Like Hawkeye came first. It's a bigger challenge because in Hawkeye you just had a couple of issues where. Clint Barton is dealing with the fact that he's lost his hearing aid and mm-hmm. you're dealing with the fact that the dog doesn't actually understand human speak except for the words collar stays. <laughs> and it's all very good and very innovative. And it's like, why didn't we include that here with Daredevil? Like everything Aldo just said, I'm just repeating basically only to add that it was, I feel like Hawkeye did this first and it's great to see it incorporated in with a character for whom that is actually a thematic element, not just... Hawkeye probably did this after, because Hawkeye came out in 2012. Wait, when did this come out? This specific run is 2011. Oh, you're kidding me! Hey. Not at all, sir. Well, okay. Well done, Mr. Martin. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, also one of, the, one of the other touches, not as creative, I think, but I really liked it, was when he's on the boat with Mr. Randall... And you get that little that that little ver sign, right? The little ver text. Yeah. Um, that's kind of consistent for like a I think a page or two, and it keeps getting like bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, you have no idea what it is. And it's running in the gutters. It's not actually in the panels, but it's it's in the white space between the page or between the panels. Yeah, and really good build up to revealing that they're about to be visited by the cartels and like their strongman, the Bruiser, who I did not mention at all because apparently I didn't note him down. Um. But yeah, like that was that was like really good build up for that. I really I thought that was really well done. Was indeed. Boy, I sure wish I was that creative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh yes, this is a wonderful comic and any thoughts of me wanting to be a writer and artist, it's like, nah. Even the second two issues where the art like is not quite as good, we still get interesting panels like where Foggy and Matt are crossing the sidewalk and we get their their, you know, conversation in snippets as we see like this whole scene unfold, you know. Um, I don't know, I just thought it was interesting. And Well, that was that little like side story where Matt is being all boy and like kind of bragging to Foggy and then he gets really solemn for a moment like this is just who I am now and this is who I have to be can you live with that and Foggy says I don't think so is that the story well it ends with him going to Batlin Jack's grave yeah yeah that's the I really mm-hmm. liked that bit yeah that whole story was really good yeah <laughs> really really good little story where uh 
foggy, you know, I don't know. Okay, the art is actually what stands out to me in, in that section the most because you've got Daredevil kind of leading Foggy down the street. And it really is Murdoch leading. Matt is, is the one who's leading. And you get these little gray panels that are highlighting what Matt is picking up with his senses. And it's yeah. everything from, like, the exhaust of a car to, like, uh, flapping wings of a bird to he can use his radar sense to figure out exactly how curvaceous a woman's backside is so he can, like, be a little bit of a lecher. Really, I thought, very clever, even though, like you pointed out, it's not, I don't think that was Martine. It's still really good stuff. And necessary for a Daredevil comic, you know? We need I that. think, yeah, I think the other kind of explainer on his abilities is when he's talking to that kid, or he's about to go visit that. I keep calling him a kid, but I think he's an adult, just like a young adult, maybe like early 20s. But when he's going to go visit Austin, and he's talking about how when his senses first woke up, it was really intense. How, like, he just heard everything. How, like, the reason he doesn't like going out in the street, like, as normal, is because he just hears everything, right? And it's and it's everything from the mundane to all the emergencies of people yelling for help. And there's obviously stuff he can't ignore, like a fire. And, like, that was really interesting where he talks about how, like, you know, at some point it all just becomes a noise and he just has to listen for and pick out certain, like, words, that, that he listens to and I thought that was also just interesting I think anytime we you kind of deep dive into how terrible it is to actually be Daredevil <laughs> it's it's really kind of interesting yeah you get like a lot of respect like yeah. as much as much as everybody hates the Daredevil movie with Ben Affleck <laughs> which is you know what's more embarrassing I I, I, I liked it at the time a lot and like... Dude, you don't have to apologize for that I liked the Nicolas Cage Ghostwriter movies. I like both of those. <laughs> oh. I love the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider movies. Oh, no. They are fine. <laughs> I really like the bit where Ben Affleck goes to sleep and he goes to sleep in that, like, that water tub, right? Sensor deprivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He'd have like that's, to. That's a nice touch. Yeah. Yeah. That's the joke is Which, that we never see the girl on Encanto who can hear everything. We never see what her room is like. And it's probably the same thing. Just a semper deprivation. It's all soundproof, you know, and she's just, ah. I do think, <laughs> never mind, I'm not going to go on that tangent. Anyways. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. It's, I think I think this does a, you know, kind of like you were saying, right? Most comics or any comic really has the potential of being anybody's first comic. But I think this, for being an introductory arc, this is the this is a trade, right? Because that's what we read is the first trade paperback. Right. This run. I think it does a really good job at familiarizing anybody with, with Daredevil. Obviously, it doesn't, you know, give you an encyclopedia on why he left and has come back and, like, how his whole identity stuff was revealed. That's obviously a little bit a little bit more of a payoff for people who are keeping up with the book, right? But I think for giving you what you need to get started, I thought this did a really well job. Yeah. A really good job. Well job, good done. I dare say they... Well job, good done. <laughs> yeah. I, dang it. <laughs> The straw that burned the camel's back. Burned it? <laughs> yeah. You know how you burn a bridge? With straw? That's the joke, Steven, is I messed up one thing and I messed up the other one on purpose. You see, it, it worked better when it was natural. You know what? That's absolutely fair. Isn't that called <laughs> malaprisms or malaportions or something where you yeah. mix uh, metaphors like that? It's like, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> uh, anything else that we'd like to add or talk about? Or I... Up? 
think we've covered it. This I'd recommend this book to people, like civilians. I would say pick up Mark Wade Daredevil because it's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to reading more um, in this in this arc. Yeah. There's a cover from this run. I have the book, but I bought it for the cover. It's no issue twelve. Uh, <laughs> I think it's funny that I have that, but it's it's some it's a woman undressing, and like you see the heartbeat of like going across her chest, and like you also see like her skin is done in the in the sonar pattern, uh, but like her dress is like a flat black color, and, like it's like a like, on a flat red color background. One of my favorite covers, but again, just kind of a nod to how well the visual design is for for this book. Which, you know, I guess kind of cruelly ironic, right? That, like, Daredevil, a blind hero, and, you know, probably the people who would most identify and like those stories kind of can't get to, like, consume, like, that creative design. It's like a little bit of, like, I don't know, tragic irony. Yeah. I know they try to do, you know, when they do film adaptations, they try to have descriptive dialogue going at the same time as the dialogue in the film so that, you know, it's describing what's going along. I would hope that they've done some sort of adaptation, you know, in a similar vein for these visual comics. Because this, you know, this is great art along with this great story and so it's a shame that you know i remember netflix got into some hot water because they had released the netflix uh season one of daredevil right mm-hmm. and they released it without any uh audio assistance or anything like that to help blind uh you know consumers be able to consume the daredevil show it's less than great yeah not a, not a good look nope it's it's kind of like it's, it's kind of like if you were holding like a sort of like wheelchair convention at a place that wasn't ADA accessible, right? Uh, yeah, no ramps. (laughs) Yeah. Professor X is just outside going, err. I don't like this. Why is she Sean Connery? I don't know. (laughs) I couldn't remember Patrick Stewart, so I I defaulted (laughs) to Sean Connery. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh, gosh. I would love, I would love Jacques Audrey, yes, Professor X. <laughs> ah, Wolverine, yes, you have claws, I see. Mm, my, my, all right, children, go to the danger room, yes. Funny s- story about Edinburgh, should you ever go to Edinburgh. Um, like many places, there are double-decker bus tours, and there is no end to the history of Edinburgh. It's been around for, you know, a thousand years or something. It's gorgeous, it's beautiful, there's so many things. If you take the double-decker bus tour, they tie in everything they can to Sean Connery. They're, you know, the little recording you listen to, here's where Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island, a classic bit of lit- literature that made him famous. But it's also along the route where... <laughs> <laughs> where Sean Connery may have been a milkman before he joined the Navy. <laughs> it's just like, you know, here is, here is Edinburgh College, uh, home, uh, you know, alma mater to this person, this person, like lists off a big bunch of pe- famous people. But did you know that Sean Connery also posed nude for art classes here? Oh, cheeky! That's, they keep doing that. And so, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him uh, as uh, Professor X, rest in peace. Anyhow. Oh, oh, right. He passed away, didn't he? Yeah, we're we're running out of bonds. Oh, now I'm sad. Oh, his his version, his interpretation of in my life is absolutely beautiful. Anyways, I'm gonna have to look that up afterwards. That sounds fascinating. But um, I think for now we have to rank. Yeah. It's time to time to rank some books. 
The old ranky stinky. No, that sounds gross. Nope. <laughs> I regret it. Man, I got that rank stink all over me. <laughs> Steven goes goes to goes to his bedroom. His wife is like, You got that rank stink. You guys were ranking again, weren't you? <laughs> no. Got, Listen, I've it was got... just two books. <laughs> now it's it's Weezer hash pipe, but it's rank stink. Oh, I got my rank stink. <laughs> Oh, gosh. So the stankiest book we've ranked is number 206, The Evil That Men Do. It's a real bad comic. But there are 205 comics that are better than that. And, heck, I would say at least 150, potentially even more, that are genuinely quite good. Uh, So where do we want to rank Modox 11? Oh, I feel like we're we're shoving stuff in this middle section of like pretty good books, and that's where this would go. Is it because that's where a deluge of like pink highlighted books are at? <laughs> <laughs> books that have not yet been added to the website. <laughs> what? No. Yes. Oh boy. Um, I have a lot of homework. Yeah, I I think this is on the lower end of that though. Yeah. There's a part of me that actually wants to put it under the Star Wars New Hope manga. Oh. But at the same time, I think I would rather read this than potentially even Vampire State, which is higher than that. So I'm a little conflicted as to where I think it should go. See, I would put it above Children's Crusade, which is one above Vampire State. Maybe that's the area for it then. That's, Number that's my vote is Number 80 is Mary Jane Black Cat Beyond, and this is not better than that. No, and I wouldn't do that to Aldo, but just based on the art by itself. <laughs> the art wasn't that bad. That was like 50% of our conversation when we talked about that book. Is like the art was good without being exploitative. No, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But also, the Black Cat, the Black Cat book is also really like pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Aldo says as he glances up at the ceiling where he has the cover says a big poster. <laughs> I promise I'd read it. I'd read it for the for the word bubbles. <laughs> uh, anyways, if it's between if it's between Modox Eleven and Vampire State, I would put this. I would put. Modox 11 above Vampire State. Okay. I think that's All probably right. fine. Is that where it goes then? Just right above Vampire State? I would put it above Children's Crusade, but that I know that I don't think that's going to fly. I don't know. <laughs> I have a really hard... I, I'm really partial to Children's Crusade for some reason or another. You're a Wiccan stan? You're a Wick stan? <laughs> Whoa, don't like that. <laughs> Wick stan, no. I don't know. I, I'm just really partial. I think it's the art. I think I'm just, I really just like the art in Children's Crusade for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, but I mean, I'm all for that argument. If you guys think it's better than Children's Crusade, sure. Uh, it's sixes to me. Sure, let's put it over uh, Children's Crusade. Give John one of those rare wins. Hey. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful type of day. <laughs> John finally gets his way. <laughs> We're at peace with one another. <laughs> Alright, so that is our new number 82. Well, it'll be 83 in a bit. It's yeah. going to be 83 in a bit, true. Where do we yeah. want to put this Daredevil story? Also, what are we going to call this Daredevil story? So we have Daredevil Yellow at 30. We have Man Without Fear at 22. And then we have, uh, let's see, Last Hand Death of Elektra at 14. 
Um, this is good, but we also it's the the first the first um, arc, and it's really two stories and six issues. Yeah. So it's not as much of an accomplishment, I think, as any of those. However, I I'm anticipating we rank this lower than we think we will, like the whole Mark Wade run, because you know I would assume we will be reading all of it eventually. Yeah. I, I think that's probably true, and I do think that this is kind of setting up to be a longer story. We're consolidating things into runs more and more as, as the podcast goes on. I think that's something that we're more comfortable doing now, when at the beginning, maybe it was me, I was resistant to it, but now I'm like more and more comfortable with it. I do actually think I like this better than Daredevil Yellow, but not much. Like, to the point where I'm not even sure I would put it above Runaways. So I almost want to put it right at number 30, but I'm not I'm not sold on that, and I could be talked in multiple different directions. I am going to say, before I talk about anything on the ranking, is that the name for the trade paperback is just Daredevil by Mark Wade. Oh, I think there was a probably another trade beforehand. Um, but nowadays, I did look this up um, when we were d- trying to decide what to read and I was trying to figure out which issues were in the first trade I think the trade the original trade is out of print and it's all just the omnibus oh yeah this is a hardcover that I'm looking at hmm. I'm fine calling it just Daredevil my bar quaint <laughs> but we know I mean we know what they're talking about I would put this under yellow because this what we read is not a complete story it is the start of a new chapter but yellow, we get a complete story, start to finish. Like we, it's a self-contained thing, and I love that book. Um, I love me some Tim Sale art. It's it is really good Tim Sale art. Marcus yeah. Martin, though, no slouch. Oh, great we did stuff! Did just mention about how he kind of helped redefine how we see his powers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of become the norm now to see that. Unless we're wrong and somebody else did it before and we're just I mean, uncultured. We're not historians. We, we're probably missing something. <laughs> but I think that this book is better at what it is trying to be, which is a fun, lighthearted Daredevil story than the Loeb Sale book is at what it's trying to be, which is basically another Frank Miller Daredevil. And now they're still really good at it, as evidenced by the fact that the book is really high. And it is, I think, the best Tim Sale art. It is so good. Because we can't read Catwoman when in Rome or Dark Halloween or Long Halloween on this podcast. But <laughs> that's some that's some good stuff too. I think this I, I, I do think yellow is actually better than those. Um, and the Tim yeah, Sale yeah. art is the best part of those books. Like yes. I, I'm not saying that to to short Tim Sale at all. Jeff Loeb a little bit, but um, <laughs> I don't know why I have a weird axe to grind with Jeff Loeb. It's completely Me unfounded. Either. It's completely unfounded. It's kind of like my appreciation of Children's Crusade. I don't know why. <laughs> well, then, although I think it goes below yellow, and Stephen thinks it goes above, where 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 do you? I like this better than I like yellow. Well, there we go. Yeah. But I do think that Runaways, at, like the full first arc of Runaways, is good enough that I would leave it where it is. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, uh, based on what we've read right now, mm-hmm. I don't think this is better than, than Runaways. Maybe the whole arc would break the Runaway ceiling. But Maybe. This bit, I don't know. I, I don't know. 
this bit um, probably isn't quite there, but good, good, good book. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think part of the reason that I felt so strongly about making sure that we gave John a win this episode is because I have significant concerns about the next one. <laughs> <laughs> you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. John has a very uh, dear place in his heart for a particular trilogy of X events, which we've read two X-Vents. of. Did you say X events? I did. <laughs> That's what they're called, Stephen. Um, anyway, we're we're about to read the final part of the Hope Summers trilogy, uh, which is called. Second Coming. I swore I was going to get the name wrong, and I actually got it right. Second Coming. This is the trilogy that began with Messiah Complex, continued with Messiah War, and now we're going to see how that whole thing ends up. Hope Summers is back, and the world will never be the same. And will we actually like it as much as John does? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) You will like it more than you think, and the art is great. We'll see about that. When was this art? Wait, I might be mixing up some of the Messiah Complex stuff <laughs> with this one. <laughs> is this 90s? No, 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 no. This is... Um, no, this is all mid-2000s. This is late aughts, if we're putting it somewhere, because it came out right... The end of this leads into AVX, which was we've it? read. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Because the end of the... I mean, not to spoil the ending, but you already know the ending. The ending is they're having a funeral and there's a big bonfire and then briefly we see the phoenix and then... Whoa. Where is AVX on our list, incidentally? Not high. We, it's we not read high. It, but... I, I mean, it's better than you think, but it's also not, like, the best. Wait, it's pretty... Lo- AVX wasn't great. 117. Mm. Do you know what it's called when Pierce Brosnan and... Daniel Craig, have a barbecue. Hold on, I can do this. A bonfire. Thank you. (laughs) 